Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. According to the NIH, the overall prevalence of sleep disorders among postmenopausal women was 51.6%. About a third of women's lives around the world are affected by sleep and menopause, and both of these have a negative impact on their health. Sleep disturbance is a significant issue for midlife women, and poor sleep has been shown in the science to increase a woman's risk for Alzheimer's disease, cancer, metabolic disease, and heart disease. And it's still February, so it's still National Heart Health Month. So now may be a good time to reassess your sleep habits and implement some new strategies if you need them. If your sleep is optimal and you're thriving in life, change nothing. Here are some more stats. 10 to 30% of adults struggle with chronic insomnia. Women have a 40% increase in insomnia due to declining sex hormones. Menopause impacts sleep two times more for women than for men. We know that alcohol disrupts sleep and 80% of adults who use sleep medications report oversleeping, lack of focus and grogginess leading to neurodegeneration. All right. So we know not getting enough sleep is, um, really bad for us. And maybe you've tried a lot of strategies at home to support your sleep goals. And now you're in menopause or post-menopause, and it's a whole new ball game for you. So what else do you need to know and what else can you do? So my guest today is coming to us with a lot of amazing information and strategies that we can start implementing as soon as tonight. My guest today is Deepa Cannon. She's an allied functional medicine practitioner, Ayurvedic practitioner, author, and a yogini at OHA Health. She has a son with a rare adrenal disorder. They gave her insight into the workings of the adrenals. Her articles have been shared by Dr. Mark Hyman, who most of you have heard of, and she is the author of the book, How to Sleep Better, The Miraculous 10-Step Protocol to Recharge Your Mind and Body, and that was just released this week. She has been featured on the award-winning podcast, 15-Minute Matrix, and UK Health Radio Discussing Sleep. A short medical disclaimer before we dive in. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or to make any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. And this entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, open your minds, and let's dive into deep sleep. Hi, Deepa. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. Thank you, Jill. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. And I think you have been such an inspiration to me ever since the first time we had our conversation. And I heard that you were the mother of so many kids. And I think <laughs> I still keep you in my radar when I'm overwhelmed with my one kid. Oh, that's so sweet. My <laughs> kids are all big and grown up and out of the house. But I got to tell you, we're here to talk about sleep. I was very, very strict with my kids as babies with their sleep. I was always making sure they were on a schedule and, 
You know, I went to a pediatrician who really made sure all of his patients were sleeping and all of the parents of the patients were making sure that the patients were sleeping. So <laughs> sleep is really important, but I am really glad to have you here. Um, congratulations on your new book, How to Sleep, which we're going to dive into a little bit. What a what a miraculous and um, inspiring story you have just in terms of what brought you to focus on sleep, which is your son. Yes, thank you, Jill. And um, it's been a long journey of the book. In fact, it's about a four to five year journey from writing to uh, to actually releasing the book. And the publishing world at times felt extremely frustrating, but there it is out there and I'm happy about it because I guess it's also testimony to all that hard work we put into any passion project and um, it's nice to see it out there. And yes, um, everything I do, I think the purpose has been my son and uh, my son was born with a rare adrenal condition called salt wasting congenital adrenal hypoplasia, which basically means they don't have the genetic code to manufacture cortisol and aldosterone. And, you know, we talk so much about cortisol in uh, the health space. And usually we're talking about how we're outputting too much cortisol and how it impacts all our health. But imagine the other scenario where they don't produce cortisol, which means that without external corticosteroids, these kids can die because they cannot uh, hold on to blood sugar, blood pressure. So basically, the blood pressure and blood sugar will crash. And mm. without aldosterone, the body cannot hold sodium. So that's why it's called salt-wasting CH, mm. that they throw out all the sodium. So in a few days, they'll dehydrate and die. Uh, and um, so therefore, under all situations where we could just get over something like a gut infection where we have runny tummy and uh, maybe vomiting, these children will dehydrate and unless they are in the hospital with IV fluids and double and triple dose of steroids to cope with that stress. Uh, it can very easily tip into fatal situations. So it's not an easy condition to manage. It's something like a type 1 diabetes where they're dependent on medication for life, and um, but uh, they can also very quickly spiral into what is called an adrenal crisis where in these situations, they can their blood pressure, blood sugar will crash and they can... Uh, dehydrate and die so it's not an easy condition to manage as a mother because you're practically on your toes every moment in time and you could be traveling and he can get a high fever and you're automatically in emergency mode because you're in a new city you have to be ready to face any emergency so that's my story very quickly and you mentioned in the book um, about your son and the diagnosis and how it really impacted your sleep as well. You you just stated, you know, you're the mom and you have to be ready for any possible possible emergencies to occur. And so how did this impact your sleep and your overall health during that early stage? Well, I think, you know, to be honest, Jill, I felt as if 
uh, that was a new phase of life because I'd come from having a divorce from a very bad marriage. And uh, when I got remarried to my present husband and we had our child, I thought that this seems perfect and life is starting anew. And uh, it was another wake up call. And uh, of course, you rightly said that I didn't actually bring enough attention to the importance of sleep back then. Uh, I just felt that I could cope with anything that came at me. And in the first year, almost every third or fourth day, we were running into the emergency room. And he also had febrile seizures, which in the case of his condition could easily put him into a really dangerous scenario. So we had to constantly be on high alert and we didn't know how to cope with the condition in the first year because it was something so new. I mean, I took a month just to accept that my baby had a diagnosis. And the first thing I said to my husband was that the doctors are talking nonsense. How can he have a condition that requires him to have steroids for his whole life? Uh, so yeah, my sleep was terrible. I was never sleeping more than an hour or two. And I didn't think there was anything wrong. I just assumed that it was perfectly fine to do that. And I felt the repercussions a few years down the line when he was out of the crisis. And then my body said, okay, now you need to see what is the impact of this years of poor sleep and I started falling into the spiral of recurrent urinary tract infections which got so serious at a point where I became antibiotic resistant and mm. some points I had this IV canola in my hand and I got the strongest of drugs uh, given to me twice a day and uh, eventually it was so scary to know that no antibiotic will work and that's the start of my transformative journey where I then went to an Ayurvedic center which helped me break that loop and uh, come out of those chronic infections and uh, then I started to think about um, was sleep an issue and how could I bring myself back to balance because I practically had 30 years of um, stress in different ways. Right. Right. That's a great segue into um, the beginning of talking about sleep, which is how and why do we sleep? You You talk about that in the opening chapter of your book, which is you know, so important. Let's just remind this community that's listening in what's happening and why it's so important for us to sleep. Well, um, I think, you know, there's something that I did recently, Jill, which really made sense to me and brought the importance of sleep into the forefront. And, you know, in functional medicine, keep hearing that for any protocol to be effective or for any healing to occur, you have to have some core basics. And uh, for me, from a functional medicine perspective, it was blood sugar balance, detoxification and sleep. Now, when you look from an Ayurvedic perspective, it said that you need three things to remain healthy, which is ahar or the right food, nidra, which is sleep, and brahmacharya, which is a right 
uh, amount of sexual activity. Uh, and we can go into those if you feel you want to. But so I drew this Venn diagram and both these uh, perspectives, the common factor was sleep. And so you start to understand really the core importance of sleep. And you could be having the most, if I mean, the best of nutrients, or you could be having protocols, uh, detoxification, but if you're not sleeping, none of those are going to be effective. Uh, so we do know that sleep is a powerful, uh, it's both a factor that can exacerbate any illness or it is a deeply supportive tool if you're sleeping, which can help anything be more effective. And of course, when we're sleeping, we run through so many stages of sleep. We can go into them quickly maybe, but maybe yeah. uh, it's not so because uh, I know that there's a lot of attention on these stages of sleep recently with all the sleep tracking devices and we right. can talk a little bit about that as well so basically we go through these five stages of sleep if you will called um, non-REM stage one non-REM stage two stage three stage four and then REM sleep uh, so non-REM Stage one is really that little cusp of the doorway between staying awake and falling asleep where we're just starting to disconnect. Slowly the sounds around us start to reduce. Our awareness of those uh, sensory inputs get reduced. Our heart rate and breathing rate start to slow down and we're really not yet in true sleep. So we're just flitting between the two. Non-Narian stage two is where we start to slow down eye movements start slowing down our heart rate goes down our um, temperature starts to go down non-REM stage three is where we're actually in deep sleep and the brain starts shifting into creating sleep waves called uh, slow waves which are called delta waves but it's interspersed with a little bit of rapid ones but most movement is very very slow and we don't wake easily once we're in stage three or stage four then non-REM stage four is where most of the brain waves are these slow waves called delta waves and uh, that's the sign all our vital signs our eye movement everything is at its slowest uh, and REM stage is when where it's almost it, vital signs behave as if we are awake. So there's still some irregular breathing, eyes can twitch, our muscles can move involuntarily, um, our blood pressure could rise. And this is where when we wake up, if we are in a REM phase, we remember dreams very vividly. Uh, but it's still considered a deep sleep. So usually if you go through, we want to be in all these stages and we go through different cycles and um, stage one and two is the bulk of our sleep. So usually it's about 55%. Uh, REM sleep is about 25% and stage three and four is usually about 20%. But again, I think today there's so many tracking devices and um we can't fall into a huge trap because for one, I don't think they are so equipped to be accurate about these different phases. Uh, and sometimes we can fall into a trap of worry if uh, something is not ideal and we're trying to do a lot of interventions 
to improve our sleep. And it's very common to have people who are have, struggling with chronic sleep challenges to say that all it does is to make me more worried that I'm not doing well. Uh, so in that case, I'm always saying just put it aside and go by more how you feel. Now, the importance of those deep sleep phases is that's when we really have deep cellular repair. Our liver does rejuvenative work. Memory formation occurs. Uh, all hormones are optimized. So it's a stage where we truly feel, even if we can't track it, when we wake up, and we've had a really deep sleep. We can, we just feel calmer. We feel uh, more energetic. But most importantly, we really feel as if um, we have the resources to cope uh, while going through the next day. And I think that's really an indicator of how we've been through all these deeper stages of sleep because our mind feels as if in a, it's in a state of equilibrium, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, you can you can recognize when you've had deep restorative sleep when you wake up, I certainly can. You know, the community we're talking to is mostly midlife women. And we know that once you start into perimenopause and as your hormones are fluctuating and declining, especially that estrogen and progesterone, um, you know, sleep becomes a real challenge. And I want to talk about, you know, the certain situations that women face, right? Certain women wake up in the middle of the night because they have to go to the bathroom. Some women might fall asleep really well, but they wake up maybe at three in the morning, you know, chronically, and then they don't fall asleep. Or women who wake up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, come back, and they are able to fall asleep. How is that all affecting, you know, from a biochemical lens, adverse things that are going on in our body? Uh, well, um, I think, I mean, that's such a big question, Jill. I mean, I don't know whether to begin by talking about what's yeah. actually going on in perimenopause itself and why that can happen and why it looks different for each person. Um, but for sure, if we are not going through all these stages of sleep, there's an impact on every part of our body. So maybe we could begin with that itself. And yeah. uh, typically when we go, don't go through all of these stages of sleep, there's impact on several things. And I think it's important to understand that uh, when we say circadian rhythm, today there's more and more research into uh, connecting different systems in the body and how they're sort of programmed to work based upon the circadian rhythm and light being a factor or darkness being a factor in any system's functioning. Uh, and this is what was also mentioned in Ayurvedic texts that there's an Ayurvedic circadian clock where uh, we have certain programs set out based upon the timing of the day. So, for example, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. in the morning is considered kapha time where everything's a bit sluggish. And that's what science correlates as cortisol hasn't started boosting when we first wake up so we need some exercise and we want to get activity going uh, 10 a.m to 2 p.m is considered pitta time of the day where that's the time the sun is over the head so it's said digestion is very strong uh, then 2 p.m to 6 p.m is considered a vata time of the day where the nervous system can get a bit 
ungrounded and it correlates to some of us feeling as though uh, in the early evening we have this dip and we're not able to focus our minds a bit scattered then 6 p.m to 10 p.m is again kapha time of the day where uh, that's the time it says that we start getting more dull preparing for sleep so sometimes that can correlate to a natural cortisol rhythm where we start slowing down and preparing for sleep and then the 10 p.m to 10 p.m to 2 a.m in the middle of the night is again considered pitta time now i just want to differentiate between the morning pitta zone and the night time and that will tell us a lot about what's happening in sleep as well so in the daytime 10 a.m to 2 p.m of pitta time is considered that the liver is programmed to support optimal digestion so helping us to take nutrients and helping the whole digestive process to support the cellular process, which means converting food to energy optimally so that we, they, we have, um, it supports nutrient absorption. It doesn't allow for toxin accumulation. However, the same pitta time in the middle of the night, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is considered a time where we need to be in deep sleep where the liver goes into a deep repair process. So mm. if you're not in deep sleep during that phase, that the liver starts to show challenges. Uh, and even in Ayurveda, it was mentioned that hormones are very much connected to the health of the liver. And we know that today that if our liver is not working optimally, that we're going to be impacted by hormone dysregulation. So I hope that gave a little peek into this um, understanding the circadian rhythms connection to system. So when we're not sleeping, so many things can happen. Our brain today, there's a lot of research on the glymphatic system that in deep sleep, we detoxify the brain waste and we need to be in deep sleep for that to occur and if you're not in deep sleep uh, the brain doesn't detoxify and that lack of detoxification of the glymphatic system is what is linked to potential neuroinflammation uh, or the predisposition towards conditions such as parkinson's or dementia and we also see that in when we connect the science that post-menopause women do have a tendency for the brain to be impacted because estrogen is brain neuroprotective. So we see so many connections between this east-west. Um, so the brain can have impact, then we can have impact on the cellular system, the mitochondrial health. And why that happens is one is deep sleep is a direct impact on the efficiency of our digestive process. And we know that if we can't digest our food well, we can't create energy. And in the conversion of food to energy, we have something called free radicals, which are created, which is what ends up aging every cell. And we need, and that's known as oxidative stress. So we need lots of antioxidant to mop up these free radicals so we can have impact on the mitochondria. Uh, heart health, you know, when you look at the predisposition for heart 
disease and women especially postmenopausal again because estrogen is protective to the heart as well there's a connection between postmenopause and heart risk and some of the risk factors for heart disease usually include chronic inflammation oxidative stress itself elevated homocysteine fa elevated fasting insulin if the blood gets uh, uh, more viscous, if there's parasitic infections, nutrient deficiencies, and so many things impact the heart. And poor sleep is a cause of lots of these challenges. Poor sleep raises inflammation, poor sleep decreases metabolic um, health itself, it weakens digestion, it creates oxidative stress, it makes us crave more sugars the next day. So there's so many connections right there uh, and of course if you're not sleeping we can get leptin resistant leptin is the hormone of us feeling satiated when we eat so sometimes no matter how much you eat you won't feel satiated poor sleep also raises ghrelin so we're perpetually hungry and we don't know when we're opening the fridge and eating a pastry or eating some dessert and before you know it we've fallen into that loop and of course it dysregulates cortisol and cortisol and poor sleep are bi-directional high uh, dysfunctional cortisol prevents sleep and poor sleep raises cortisol which is why the next day we're snapping at everybody around us and we don't have control we just we're just unable to be balanced and for sure um, there's one thing I want to finish this area. Of course, there's genetic factors as well that um, sleep is a powerful epigenetic factor. And if you're not sleeping, we risk so many genetic uh, conditions from arising. But what I want to really wind up this area, Jill, is to say that Postmenopause or perimenopause in Ayurveda, women are shifting from a pitta time of life to a vata time of life. And what that means is vata is that it makes the body dry. So everything in our body starts drying. So we're entering this vata age of life. Uh, which is the time of perimenopause till the time that of our death. And so we're entering this dry phase. And then we also have possibly many women are also having vata aggravation because of this constant stress from everywhere. Uh, and so both of these factors start to impact sleep because in Ayurvedic perspective, the main reason for poor sleep no matter who it is, no matter the individual, the age, the season, is excess vata, that it dysregulates the nervous system. What we say high vata in Ayurveda, you could correlate in the science as a sympathetic overdrive, a fight or flight, uh, yeah. or an adrenal dysfunction. So uh, just to connect the science to when you say vata, sometimes it feels obscure. So what Ayurveda says, vata is airy, vata is dry, is that it also tips us. We're not able to shift back into parasympathetic state very easily. Uh, so I think to wrap it up, that might explain a little bit about why women in that age struggle so much. And then we can talk more specifically about different body constitutions and the same phase of life, if you like.
Oh yeah, please bring that up. But I, I do want to ask um, you one thing about hormones and the, the Vata stage being dry. It makes so much sense, right? Because there's a lot of common complaints among midlife women. Their hair feels dry. Their skin is dry. There's vaginal dryness. So that makes so their eyes are dry. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm a huge proponent of taking um, hormone replacement therapy. I, I use it. I think that everyone needs to be educated on it so that they can then go and make a better informed decision for themselves. Um, even for the people who think no way, this is not how I want to age. I don't want to take any hormones, educate yourself. And this is your, what you're bringing to the table right now is that Ayurvedic lens of what hormones are doing inside our body to make it so difficult so that we're always in this negative this negative feedback loop when it comes to sleep, right? If we cannot master our sleep, we are not going to be able to achieve any other health goals, especially for midlife women who are on a weight loss journey, right? Because we start to uh, gain weight around our midsection and our metabolism changes. Um, and women just can't lose weight during this time. And so what you're bringing to the table is, is such educational and informative information for all of us. And I think Jill, that you also just said something which was so beautiful about how in uh, this phase, women start to pile on the weight in the midsection. And you know that Ayurveda said this, the seesaw relationship between high vata and agni, agni is our digestive capability. So it's said that if we have weak agni, we'll have high vata and vice versa so meaning and we know today that the science is telling us if we are in a fight or flight our body shuts off digestion so we we've correlated what ayurveda said that whenever the nervous system is dysregulated or this high vata phase that we love weak agni if we have weak agni we will pile on belly fat because there's mm. no fire in the in the belly and that's the simile that ayurveda used that agni there's a fire because it was about the strength of our digestion but however the beauty was that they also prescribed a lot of protocols to improve agni and balance vata and we can talk about all of that but uh, do let me know where you'd like to go now we can talk about uh, different bodies and how they respond and I also yeah, want to say yeah. that I also want to say that I'm in total agreement with you Jill about making informed decisions whether it's about hormone replacement therapy or anything else and that's why my mantra is health wisdom from east and west so that you can live your very best and I think that I nobody should feel that it's just this or just just that that I feel like yeah. whatever works for you personally and you feel better go for it absolutely uh, there's no right or wrong and <laughs> if it's something that works for you great uh, so the basic thing is that so when we think about menopause we have to think that overall we're entering a vata age so there's one factor is the age is becoming we're going from being unctuous and moist to dry so think about uh, a plum in um, the fertile years and then it starts drying up into 
to a prune in the vata years. That's what's happening to our mm-hmm. body. So that vision <clears throat> really explains yeah. how we're losing all our moisture. So we've got one factor, which is the age. The second factor, we might be living in a colder place. If you're somebody who's living in a really cold zone or uh, it has winters that are very cold, then the vata can aggravate even more. So we need to know how to keep that in balance. Um, and then we've got the three different women. So we've got women who are more vata body, pitta body, kapha body. So the vata bodies will be the ones who probably right through life could show up as having adrenal dysfunction. They could show up as having low output of hormones. So lifelong, they may have low progesterone, low estrogen, uh, or I, any one of those. So they're not having the ability to produce hormones because through life, they're a bit more dry. The Pitta women are the ones who, in the scientific perspective, through their fertile years, they might show up as being more estrogen dominant. Uh, they might have, be prone to heavy cycles. So Pitta will is the fire, so they're more fiery. And that can show up as having several days of heavy bleeding in the fertile years. Um, and then the kapha women are the ones who might show up in the fertile years as kapha is the ability to produce too much of tissue. So they'll be the ones who show up as having a uh, uh, buildup of cyst in the ovary, fibroid, endometriosis. So there's these several different types of women and how it can show up. Now, just to say it's not black and white because um, I think sometimes when the Ayurvedic perspective is spoken about women could go and do an online quiz and then might get a wrong assessment of their body constitution. So that's very tricky. So uh, anytime those assessments are made, it's always better to go to a practitioner because otherwise you'll tend to fall into a trap of identifying your body constitution based on this present state of imbalance. And that's going to give you a wrong assessment of your body right Mm. through life so the basic thing is no matter what these different women's bodies are that we enter vata's age but the ones who are more kapha so usually you might have heard of sometimes women who've had fibroids post menopause it shrinks by itself uh, some sometimes these situations happen where they say that oh after menopause it'll shrink itself so that's kapha so kapha's role can actually be where women um, do better after menopause they still retain their moisture so they don't really run into too many problems however in today's world Jill most most women have some level of vata aggravation because we're all in a state of chronic stress Uh, so I think it's helpful to look at some ways to support calming vata for every woman and uh, that's what we see in menopause that we're not able to sleep and coming back to some of those You said women go through certain symptoms in menopause. So generally the vatas will have, because they've got the tendency to be more dry, they'll have the dry vagina, possibility of vaginal tears under sexual intercourse or 
you yeah. know, um, it, the tissue is very fragile. So yeah. they'll have this dry vagina and you can do so much with that. Yeah. There are protocols in Ayurveda with uh, using herbal oils as a vaginal uh, soak, which does wonders. And, you know, it doesn't have to be an estrogen um, suppository because there is a lot in Ayurveda itself not to say that it's this or that again whatever works uh, those who are more pitta who enter this menopause phase they will be the ones in perimenopause who will have hot flashes because pitta is fire yeah. Uh, so they'll be the ones who will wake up in a sweat and uh, they might in perimenopause have excessive bleeding, just like losing iron because they're bleeding so much. And you can calm even that fire down in several ways. So you can do like cool cooling oil massage. You can do aloe, drinking of aloe vera juice, which soothes the mucosa. Uh, then the kapha women will generally have not too many problems going into menopause. So maybe they'll have some weight gain, but keeping the body moving, walking a lot, all of those things. I think targeting these uh, protocols specific to the woman based upon that moment in time can be very helpful uh, when you assess them from both perspectives, scientifically and through an Ayurvedic perspective, you can do wonders in helping them to target the right therapies. But no matter if, if you have any specific symptoms you'd like to talk about, Jill, we can go into those in detail. But no. I think, yeah, I want to move into the senses because it's such, it's the meat of your book, but I do want to say there's a whole chapter on hormone imbalance in your book and everywhere throughout the book, you offer these Ayurvedic protocols and therapies as, as well as, um, you know, nutrients as a supplement, right? What, if you have X, Y might be an option for you. And I love this because like I said, there are a lot of women out there who don't want to take hormone replacement therapy. It's just, that's how they feel and they need alternatives. Um, so it's a, a, your book is wonderful because you do feel that you're mixing the East and the West all along um, while you're reading your book. But I want to move into these senses because you talk about how these various senses are connected to our sleep patterns, like sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, locomotion. And then there's some other ones I didn't list. And I, I let's, we're not going to get, be able to get through all of them. And that's why you need to buy Deepa's book because it's really, I read it in two days. It was really phenomenal. Well done. Let's, let's talk about sight because it seems obvious to a lot of people, right? The basics, don't watch screens before bed, wear blue blocking glasses, um, get early morning sunlight, but what else in there are we missing? I think the most important thing I would say, Jill, is that, you know, we do know that blue light is bad only on our screen. For one, it's become the wallpaper behind us. We all know this, but we're not always applying it. However, there's one more key point there that I think a lot of people uh, might overlook. One is that we tend to think that we need to be cautious of blue light and our screens only after sunset. However, for people like me who's working in the morning before the sun has come up, that is also a window of potential um, disruption. So if you're working on a screen before the sunrise, 
I think we need to be cautious of taking care even in that window where we perhaps wear good blue light blockers. So that's one key point. Uh, the second thing which I see a lot of times and when we say sight in the book, I've explored it as overall circadian rhythms. And I think an important point to note is I see so many people who uh, eat a different eat at a different time every single day. So one day they're eating at 10 a.m., one day they're eating at 1 p.m. I think having regular meal times is also part of this circadian yeah. support. And um, the other factor which a lot I think comes up more when people are younger maybe but also older is when we're not sleeping enough during the week somehow we think that we should sleep in on the weekend and wake up several hours later and that's a big disrupting factor itself. Uh, so I always tell people if you want to get more sleep on the weekend go to bed earlier if you can and the occasional times that you're out somewhere that's perfectly fine we have we all have those situations but don't change the wake up time and change the way cortisol is going to be released every single so if you're doing four days at 6 a.m and then every weekend two three days you're waking up at 9 to 10 a.m that's going to be a big factor mm -hmm. and that finally i want to say when you talk about sight is that a lot of the information outside is about the impact of light through our eyes, which is why in the book, I wanted to go into a different angle, which is how the health of the eyes plays a role in our interaction with light and dark and how our body regulates circadian rhythm. So there are a lot of research showing how macular degeneration or aging eyes reduces how uh, we interact and how circadian rhythm behaves. Therefore, taking care of the eyes is a big factor in supporting circadian health. And we can do that in so many ways, including, um, you know, Ayurveda has simple hacks like just putting a drop of ghee into the eye every night. And people are always a bit taken aback when wow. I say that. Uh -huh. uh, but you will find that the moment you drop a one tiny drop of ghee into the eye. So literally on your bedside, you lie down and put this. And it's said that pitta plays the role in the eyes, which is the fire. And so you'll see that people with a tendency for like pitta bodies or high pitta, like fire, they'll be the ones who will develop red eyes, allergies frequently. They'll be needing lifelong these uh, drops for the eyes, whereas... I've had very good results just using that drop of ghee. And you'll find hmm. the moment you drop that ghee into the eyes, you start to feel sleepy as well. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's a great simple hack that anybody can do in the comfort of their own home. And yeah. uh, unless, of course, they have serious eye challenges, in which case they should consult somebody. But most often, for the most part, this is a recommendation that is safe for almost everybody. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So if people want to read at night in bed, because now they've decided they're removing the TV from their room, they're not watching on their computer, they're not looking at their phone, they're doing all the right things. So they're going to read a book for half an hour until they fall asleep. 
and they're wearing, maybe they're wearing their glasses with blue blocking lenses, um, but maybe they have on a night lamp, right? Because they can't see their book. Maybe they're still reading from a hardcovered paper book or, um, you know, maybe on a, um, a Kindle or something that doesn't have a light built in. So is that also going to be harmful? I think um, there was a little joke that went on between somebody I knew and me a day ago, just yesterday, and he's released a book, which is a thriller. And, um, you know, when I shared a post about his book and he said, your book makes people sleep and my book makes people stay awake. So I think we <laughs> need to bring our attention to the content of the book, right? So that's mm -hmm. very key. But reading overall has beyond light in the room. Reading has been shown that it very rapidly lowers cortisol and is a positive um, support for us to be able to sleep. Provided the nature is of the content is not stimulating and mm -hmm. activating to the nervous system. But otherwise, I think that light in the room, if it's a warm tone, it's not a fluorescent white, it's perfectly fine because reading has repeatedly shown that it helps us to fall asleep. As long again, as I said, so the content really matters. So while Kindle does come with the setting today that you can keep the light dimmer or mm -hmm. a hard copy, I mean, I'm reading all the time in bed and I can surely say that that light doesn't have an impact on my sleep because the power of reading is so profound in helping us to fall asleep. Yeah, good. That's great. Uh, a lot of people are really happy right now hearing that. Um, and audiobooks, Jill, we can't forget audiobooks as well because there's so many audiobooks today that it, we can even be listening to stories. And that's the yeah. base of so many uh, sleep supportive interventions like sleep stories. And no, absolutely. I have a lot of clients who love the audio sleep stories. And also if they're doing um, a meditation app, right. And they're in their bed doing that. Right. So I think those are wonderful. What are your thoughts on red light therapy in terms of helping support your circadian rhythm? I know that there's a lot about this and personally because my area of work has been a lot more I'm always trying to find interventions for people that they can do easily from their own home uh, so I generally don't go towards that but that said as I said I'm always for anything that helps uh, and I know a lot of people who do uh, um, talk a lot about red light therapy and using it and I think the basis really comes from uh, the color frequency of the sunset uh, and therefore if I'll still say if there's a possibility of just sitting outside and looking at the sunset do that first but yeah, absolutely. These are interventions where I feel that if you have opportunity and if you have it in your home and you can use it, for sure, it can be very helpful. But I do also want to say that if somebody doesn't want to invest in something like that yeah. and they want to do something more natural, there's that option as well. But the science behind it is that link of this frequency of the sunset. So whatever works for uh, people, yeah. I think it can be helpful. For example, if somebody lives in a place where they don't, where they hardly see this 
sun or the power of the exactly. sunrise, sunset, it can be absolutely helpful. Yeah, that's why well, I live in Chicago and there are days where you don't see the sun and I know that you're still getting some rays. So I take my dogs out for an early morning walk. I know I'm getting something, but I use my red light therapy box, which is very small. Um, and I use it on, especially on those days. What about sound? I thought this was a really interesting segment of your book, the correlation between sound and sleep. I think Jill, that came up also because, um, I myself was very, very sensitive to sun and I never knew why. I knew that lifelong I had the tendency for my ears to get blocked with wax and I'd have to keep going to the doctor to have it removed. And uh, when I was in my first marriage, it was a bad marriage and I would always be on high alert the moment I heard him come home or uh, it would kind of get me alert. Um, and I started to wonder about that. And therefore, when I was doing the, when, of course, my Ayurvedic training later told me that Vata is the home of the year and Vata can make, uh, if there's somebody who has high Vata, the years will keep getting dry, the wax will get very hard. Uh, they won't be able to fall asleep. So when I started to look into that connection, I found so many areas that sound is, um probably the sense that is most sensitive to the adrenal gland and to the nervous system so you know obviously we are looking at something which is very alarming it is scary but imagine somewhere where you can't see something and you hear this alarming sound we all know how uh, shaken we feel when something jars us so I started to connect and then I noticed all of these connections and how noise can release this cascade of stress hormones and there's this sudden output of cortisol because when there's uh, alarming sounds and maybe all of us are not in situations where we face such things but however that connection indicates that there is a um, deep uh, link between adrenal function, the nervous system regulation and the ears and our ability to get input from our environment via the ears. Uh, so you can do uh, so many things to take care of the ears and the practices which you can use the ears to calm down the nervous system. Uh, just like putting ghee on the eye, you can put a warm sesame oil into the ear, which calms down the brain. And you almost instantly feel as if the world is a better place after you do that. It's just remarkable. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, I really loved that section on sound because I'm a very light sleeper. So that really resonated with me and I have to use a sound machine. I need some kind of white noise. Anytime I'm going to sleep, I travel with a mini sound machine as well. Um, of course you can get an app on your phone. I don't think there is good, but yeah, I'm very sensitive to sound. I also think I, you know, I just did a podcast with, um, a functional medicine MD and her specialty is stored trauma. And so she talks about the adrenals and the nervous system a lot and how it, you know, sound can trigger stored trauma in the building that of course will set off a cascade of events. And so you're in that fight or flight mode, like what you were saying. So it's really interesting how you can come to all these um, very common places from different lenses in the functional medicine space. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a, yeah. such a valid point you described about trauma because yeah. uh, even in the book, in the section on sound, uh, the case I've described, of course, right. all names change to protect identity, but I've spoken about how the yeah. sound of the wardrobe was jarring to her and how uh, it, it's what you just described about how it can very quickly bring the memories of trauma and it's a powerful way sound can just instantly pull that trauma out from the subconscious. Yeah. Well, we have time for one more sense. I'm going to let you pick out which one you want to talk about. <laughs> I always have trouble with this when somebody asks me because I think they're like 10 babies and I yeah. never know <laughs> that. How do you pick a favorite? Um, but probably I would say the sense of locomotion or movement mm. uh, because I think it's just such a powerful factor in changing how we sleep so basically in the east it said that one of the sense organs of action is our legs which allows us to have the action of locomotion so our legs are what allow us to move from place to place so i started to look at that as our ability to use exercise and movement as a sleep supportive and we know this we know but how about we reframe some of those concepts that uh, for example, I spoke about the Ayurvedic calendar right at the start that 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. is considered kapha time where the body is sluggish, where cortisol is not yet come out. Uh, so we can help that so much by getting movement in that window. So if you are awake at 6 or 7 a.m., get your exercise at that window because it prevents you from feeling heavy and lethargic the whole day. And it also, we know that there's such a synergistic connection between morning cortisol and even nighttime melatonin. So getting the exercise in that window is really powerful. But I think in the book, I've gone a lot into specific aspects of yoga. So how inversions can help, uh, how stretching the legs can be helpful, and inversions, I think, are one of my most favorite hacks because whether it's after a night of poor sleep, you know, and you feel I can't go out, I can't work out, I'm so exhausted, but spending 15, 20 minutes in upside down poses like headstands and shoulder stand, your day is set, the whole day you've got energy. So it's a way where you get a lot for very little you put in. So it's very relaxing to be in those poses, but it gives you something powerful throughout the day. And similarly, it also, you know, way back till 25 years ago, when I was in the ashram in the Himalayas and the teacher would talk about how I was so petrified to do the headstand. I would always be scared of falling. And one of the teachers said to me, are you on the edge of a cliff? Are you going to fall off a cliff? Why are you so scared? And he said to me that learning to do the headstand works out something in the brain where whatever we are scared of, we, we are no longer scared of. So learning to do the headstand does something there where maybe I'm scared of public speak, 
speaking and I used to be petrified of public speaking. I'd start to go into a free state if I had to speak in an interview or anything. And he used to say, if that's difficult for you, when you master the headstand, that will become easy for mm. you. Mm. So I think that's a powerful way in how our nervous system gets regulated. So putting... Um, attention into something like learning to do a headstand can be a way that we support our resilience to stress overall. Mm. So I've mm. spoken a lot of details about the science of the inversion. So I would, if you ask me one hack from that, I would say, unless somebody has high blood pressure or neck issues, I'm telling everybody that they need to go learn how to do a headstand. And even if they don't learn to do it on their own, mm -hmm. there's a headstand stool, which you can get easily where you are not putting your head on the floor. You hold oh. the stool and your shoulders rest on the stool and your neck is hanging freely. So I'm always telling people, even if you're scared or you can't do it for neck reasons, get yourself a stool I'll tell you, Jill, every one of my yoga students is hooked to that. Uh, and That's so it helps you have great energy through the day and also go into a very zen sleep at night. So oh, I love if that. you ask me my favorite, I would say absolutely the upside down. Wow. Can you get that on Amazon? Yes, you can yeah? look for a headstand nice. bench. Okay. Uh, and just I would only say be cautious as to... Uh, don't buy flimsy ones because you'll get a lot of cheaper ones and yeah. buy solid wooden frame and uh, it'll have a top which you can remove and put back and um, maybe initially have somebody teach you one-on-one -on -one for a few days absolutely yeah just yeah. be a bit careful with that and it's also important to understand that in the ashram they'd also tell us a funny story that you know, when yoga poses are done, you're supposed to balance. So if you do a headstand, you need to end with something standing or a shoulder stand because the body is about balance. Energy system is about balance. And they talk about this man. And I never knew if the teacher was just making it up, but it made so much sense. He'd say that, you know, when we do a practice of one hour, our headstand is five minutes. So the rest of the time after that, we're grounding the energy and said one boy came into the ashram and one day he did a headstand for five hours and he started to behave as if he was drunk he didn't do anything after that and he started wandering around and he was acting like he was tipsy I didn't know if they were making it up but it made a lot of sense to me mm -hmm. so I'd again caution people who say can I just do the headstand today and I'm always saying no, if you do the headstand, you must ground the energy with, you know, just doing some sitting, doing a mm -hmm. shavasana. Otherwise, you're not going to be, imagine you're sending all this blood into the head and you're mm -hmm. not settling it afterwards. So it can have repercussions on blood pressure and so, so for sure it makes it makes some. so much sense right everything has to be balanced in our life right and that's Absolutely. just one one small example right but yes. how we figure out how to bring that balance into our life is is why we do these podcasts and why we have these conversations so before we say goodbye what are your three favorite supplements 
or Ayurvedic herbs that you would suggest for midlife women? And I want everyone to know, obviously always check with your practitioner, or if you're working with a functional medicine doctor or whoever it is before you start on anything new, but what are your three top favorites? Well, for sure, I think vitamin D low dose, but in the morning, and I go into that in the book as to how vitamin D and melatonin have a relationship that sometimes taking it in the night can prevent melatonin release. And also I find that the higher dose can impact the liver when people have a congested liver. So low dose vitamin D in the morning for sure. Uh, nighttime magnesium glycinate for sure I think it's my top um, recommendation for women and uh, if you were to ask me about Ayurvedic herbs that's a bit more tricky because it's more individualized Uh, and you know we might hear a lot about ashwagandha as ashwagandha Mm -hmm. can be very helpful to regulate the nervous system but what I can tell you is that you can use a hack so when you not everybody can handle ashwagandha internally as a herb because it's very heating to the liver now of course if someone has no pitta aggravation it can work well but for many many people taking it internally can heat the liver Uh, However, most of us have some level of vata excess and using ashwagandha transdermally can be supportive where we don't Mm. go through the digestive tract. So you can get ashwagandha as a transdermal cream and then you can use that uh, which can be beneficial to almost everybody. So I think using ashwagandha as a transdermal cream or adding ashwagandha powder into any base oil and using it for oil massage and soaking in it for a 30 minutes. That is a powerful way of getting the benefit of ashwagandha without potential side effect, which can arise person to person. Hmm. Uh, so if you were to ask me that, if you said just three, I had to be very careful of choosing <laughs> that. But... <laughs> Well, that's why everyone has to go get your book because you offer (laughs) so much information in your book. It is just wonderful. Congratulations again on your release. And it's been such a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Great to see you again. And um, any closing words from you? I think especially for your audience, Jill, especially since you said it's more in the Mm -hmm. menopause age, I would just say one thing. I constantly have people telling me that, uh, you know, my mother told me just the other day when I was saying that I'm so tired because it's been like 80 days I've had no period and you know, she said to me, surely you can't help yourself with Ayurveda functional medicine. And I think that we need to stop judging other women. I need to think, I feel that we need to be sensitive. We are all human. Even the best of us as practitioners are navigating a lot of changes in our body and mind. So I think that just... um, If somebody ever tells you something like that, just love yourself, give yourself an extra hug that day and um, maybe have a conversation with somebody who's on um, your zone, so to speak, who can tell you that you're human and you just, you know what to do. And sometimes my husband does that role and tells me that, 
uh, you don't, you know, just go lie down, I'll do something, just go and do an oil massage. So I think we all need lack of judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need lack of, we need more sensitivity from people around us. Just because we are health practitioners sometimes doesn't mean we're not mothers and wives and children right. with workload and a lot of things. So, so yeah. Um, I think that's where the world, I would like the world to be just women lifting up women. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that, Deepa. Thank you so much. It was great to see you. Um, I am going to list so many show notes here for everyone so they can find you, find your book. I'm going to even put that stand bench in there <laughs> in case anyone <laughs> wants to get that. But it was lovely to see you and thanks for tuning in everyone and enjoy your day. Thank you so much, Ilan. You're a great interviewer. You just oh, thank you. warm space and it just lets everything flow. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks everyone. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.